Well, good morning. How many enjoyed shoveling their walk this morning? <laughs> How many enjoyed someone else in your family shoveling the walk this morning? <laughs> okay. Well, we're about 50-50 on that. Yeah, I just we're uh, doing a Hearing God series, and um, if you've been wondering why we have video cameras here and there uh, for this series, um, we are... Uh, recording this series so that in the future we can use some of the teaching from this series to uh, for our Hearing God seminars. So we've been holding that at our church for three years, and it hasn't been a Sunday morning thing. It's been like a midweek thing. And lots of people have gone through the Hearing God seminar and are continuing to. In fact, uh, Tuesday nights with our, our prayer pastor, Laura Blackman, they're continuing to do the Hearing God seminar. But we were using teaching provided... Uh, from another uh, minister who we had a recording of, and now we're recording this for our own sake so that in the years to come, we will have uh, teaching from our in-house. Anyhow, so that's, that's the gist of it. So uh, if, you, if you say, well, we're not used to having video cameras uh, recording our services, well, anyhow, that's what it's about. It'll also, in, in 20 years, I'll be able to look back on this and see what I looked like. So that'll be really helpful too. That'll either be really depressing or, uh, well, we'll see. I'll check out in 20 years what it's, what, how it feels. All right, let's, I want to just recap the first two weeks because we're in week three. So the first two weeks, the first week we talked about how God will use the principles of Scripture and the promptings of the Holy Spirit to guide us. And that by adopting the principles of Scripture for your life, that will help you make the most of your decisions. In fact, it will help you make most of your decisions. Uh, but there are decisions that principles alone will not make. And that's where the promptings of the Holy Spirit come in. So that's what we talked about in the first week. The second week, we talked about uh, how hearing God was all about relationship. It was all about relationship. And that we needed to hear from God so that he can function as our Lord and King and he can function as our father, and he can be our life. And uh, for me, that message was really, for me, all about marveling about the fact that God would not only give us the Bible, which is amazing, and more than we deserve, but that he would also give us promptings to let us know that he loves us, that he knows us, that he's there to guide us and to empower us. Now, he didn't have to do that, but God is so good, he is that good, that he does. So welcome to Hearing God, week number three. And I've entitled this Hearing God Through the Bible. Next week, I plan to speak on the topic of different ways in which God speaks. All sorts of different ways in which God speaks. But today, I thought I'd tackle the big one that I think that God wants us to use regularly in the life of every believer. And that's hearing God through reading or listening to or recalling uh, the words of Scripture, words from the Bible. Now, I say read or listen because has that ever changed? I mean, I don't know how many people read books anymore. I think most people listen to books or podcasts uh, a lot more than they read. And I know that for me, that's become a dynamic where I'm, I found it, the availability of audiobooks or the availability of being able to listen uh, to things on your phone or whatever has really changed the game. In fact, for me, with, with Bible reading, it's changed the game. How many of you have a Bible app on your phone? Just curious. I'd be curious, how many of you, is, is that Bible app you version? How many of you have the you version Bible app? Okay, a good chunk of you. Uh, that's the one I use, the you version Bible app. It has lots of reading plans and it's really helpful. When I watch this video in 20 years, this will seem so outdated what I'm saying right now. Uh, apps, what were those, right? It'll sound like uh, telling a kid about uh, a VHS player or something. But I, in order to accomplished the goal in my life of reading the Bible more, I have cleaned off my phone. I had to clean off a lot of things. I, I, first, it was like my app that told me the basketball scores. I had to get rid of the score because I was reading it all the time. And then I, I'd be curious about stock prices. I got rid of the stock app. I, I'd, uh, I'd want to see what was happening on Facebook. That had to go. That app had to go off my phone. I still am on Facebook, but not on my phone. Uh, I, I got rid of my banking app. I can't bank on my phone anymore because I just wanted to look at it too much. And I got rid of every single app that was taking precedence over the Bible app. 
So now I have two apps, the weather app and the Bible app. And the weather is just boring enough that the Bible app is better. So you got to do what it takes in order to win in this area of life. This is a really important area. This is a really important area. And you will see, hopefully, as we go through the scriptures we're going to look at this morning, that it is absolutely essential to win in this area. And you've got to do what you've got to do to win in this area of life. And I'm so glad that now there's so many ways I can double up in my Bible reading. The other, I got a uh, gym membership, at, at, and there's a running track involved, and so I'm running at the track listening to John this week with my phone up to my ear. I didn't have any earphones. I just hang, had it hanging there, so my arm got tired. But anyhow, it was great. It was great. I mean, I, as I ran, Jesus just accomplished so much in his ministry. It was amazing how many things he did while I ran. And, uh, and my wife this Christmas, she got me... A waterproof Bluetooth speaker for the shower. So I even can listen to the Bible in the shower. Even when the soap gets in my eyes, I can still be hearing the Word of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's so many ways that we can engage the Word of God today. We're so fortunate. And I want to tell you today that when you, however you engage the Word of God, whether you listen to it, whether you read it, whether you have it in the shower or on the track or wherever, I want to encourage you to do it two ways. I want you to engage it as a scholar and as a follower. As a scholar and as a follower. What does that mean? First, what does it mean to approach the Bible as a scholar? It means that you're really there to really take in what it says. You're really there to observe. I'll talk to it mostly in the context of reading the Bible, but if you're listening, it would apply as well. You're really there to observe what it really says. It might mean that you take it slowly. You read it slowly. You're paying attention to line and line upon line and phrase upon phrase to really get what it's saying. Or maybe you read it more than one time. Say, I didn't quite get it the first time around. I'm going to read it again. Or maybe you read it in more than one translation. There's lots of different English, good English translations. What I like to do is I go to a website called Bible Gateway, and I'll open my go-to, which is the NIV. And then if I'm not quite getting it, I'll hit the parallel button, and up will pop the message translation. And I'll see if Eugene Peterson can help me. And that's helpful to me. You might find that helpful to you. Uh, some people print it out, and then they go to town. Man, once you print it out, Man, you can really, really dig deep. I find it very helpful to me. You can highlight things that stand out. Maybe you'll circle a word or phrase that's used more than once. You say, oh, there's that word again and again and again. That must be significant. Um, maybe you're going to mark it up with arrows. You're going to say, this is referring to that. I'm sort of figuring out what this is saying. Or you might summarize several paragraphs in a sentence that's memorable for you. You'll say, oh, yeah, I see that this is the big theme that's here. Uh, maybe you'll read the passage before the part that you were reading so that you get the context. You understand, well, I, I'm not sure why they're talking about this. I'm not sure why this is coming up. Oh, aha, I read the context and now I understand it. Or you might read from a commentary of a reputable Bible teacher or, or pastor and you might see what they have to say about a difficult passage that you're really struggling to understand. A scholar is intent on inspecting the text, really finding out what's there and dissecting the text, breaking it down to its parts to really understand it. And let me just read you a great verse that I think would be, a, if you're a scholar of the Bible, this is probably a verse you really love, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Wow, that's great. You know, one of the things I think that happens most often, it happens, well, I may not, not most often, but it happens very often with the Bible is people take God's words out of context. They read one line and they go, oh, I think I know what he means. <laughs> And you hate it when people do that to you, don't you? You absolutely do. You're telling someone this long reason for why you think or why you believe what you believe or, or what you really think. And then when, they're, when you're done, they, they heard one line of what you said. And so it's this, right? And you're like, no, no, that was just part of it. And actually now that you just say it like that, it sounds all wrong because it's not, it's not in context. And so we don't want to do to God what we wouldn't want people to do to us. We want to correctly handle God's word, and you need to be diligent in order to do that. So I say approach the Bible as a scholar. And 
and make it a regular part of your life. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't just study the word, but retain it. Retain it. So it might be memorizing it, uh, but I've hidden it in your heart that I might not sin against you. The residual effect of having the word in our lives and having it uh, in our hearts is that it'll change our behavior. We, we won't sin as much because of that. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk. You might have read this in the last two weeks because we've been going through Psalms in John. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or stand or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight, okay, this guy's delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the Bible. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The, the scriptures go on to compare it to another dude who basically is like chaff. And we live in a farming community, so we know what chaff is, right? It's the part of the grain. It's the straw. It's the stuff that we, doesn't go into the bread, right? It's the stuff that just blows away in the separation process. So it says, do you want to have a life that's solid and strong and growing and vibrant and fruitful like a tree? Or do you want to have a life that just blows away in the wind and doesn't count for anything like chaff? The difference maker is regular engagement with the word of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and light, day and night. And that's how he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do is prosperous. It's a great picture of what people become as they engage with the word of God. So approach it like a, as a scholar, but approach it, approaching the Bible as a follower is slightly different. And this, I have to remind myself of this one. Instead of making it your goal to read so you understand only, a scholar could just do that. It could be that someone just, I'm just here to read and understand. The follower enters the text so that they are affected. It's not just inspecting, it's not just dissecting, it's being affected. So the scholarly approach is mainly about handling the text properly, which you should do. But the follower is willing to have the text handle them. So they might pray for God to speak to them as they read. And they might stop and linger longer on words that come alive, that jump out of the text at them and grab a hold of their hearts. And they might ask God, how should I be different today because of what I am reading? And they might pray the phrases of the scripture that they've read back to God. And they might just sit focusing on what they've read about God and slowly begin to worship him. And they might reorder their to-do list with new priorities because of how they've been affected. Or they might make new appointments in their schedule because it seems like God is directing them that way. Or they might text a verse to a friend to encourage them. This is reading the Bible as a follower. So the scholar could be content simply to gather and retain new information, but the follower cannot be content with only that because they know that this book was ultimately meant not for information, but for transformation. So I have to remind myself of this reality. Because I get to teach from the Bible, I can often read it like a textbook, primarily trying to understand its message, and sometimes without allowing the message to transform my own heart. So I have to remind myself of that. Steve, you're not just coming as a scholar to be able to uh, educate or to help people be informed, but you're also coming as a follower to be changed yourself. It's important to be a follower because those who intend to do what the book says will learn the most from God. In fact, we, we read that this week. If you're reading in John, you read in John 7, people came to Jesus and they were like blown away that he was such a great teacher. And they're like, how did he get this? Who taught him? How, how did he become so smart? How did he become so... Who taught Jesus was basically the conundrum that they had because they realized he was teaching at such an incredibly high level, higher than they'd ever experienced before from the most well-taught people. So who taught Jesus was the question they had. And Jesus gives them a little hint. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God, this is John 7, 17, anyone who chooses 
to do the will of God. That's the definition of a follower. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, there are things hidden, like who taught Jesus? Do you want to know the answer to that? If you were living in that day and you were like, how did he become so learned and how did he get to be able to teach such amazing things? If you were that puzzled person, the fastest way to knowing the answer to your question would be to choose to do the will of God. To say, God, I'm here to follow. And along the way, you would have found out that Jesus' teaching was straight from God. That would have been what would have been revealed. So choosing to follow the commands of God in advance of reading the Bible is going to open up the Bible to you in a whole new way. You're going, to get, you're going to get so much more out of it because you've chosen to follow. So much more is going to be revealed to you. Now, the Bible can have an amazing effect in your life. I want to read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It tells about that effect. And it's, I'll start at verse 14, actually. I'm going to back up, and then I'll, I'll catch those other verses. And this is Paul writing to his sort of protege, his protege, Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has in store for you to do, read the Bible. Read the Bible. It'll equip you. It'll equip you. God has things, in fact, the scriptures tell us that God, in, in ages past, God designed for you to do certain good works in your life. You want to be equipped for that? You want to be ready for that? You want to be able to step up to that? Engage the word of God. It, it'll have an effect in your life. It'll teach you. It'll also have an effect you won't always like. It'll rebuke you. You'll recognize, oh, wow, I'm not in the right place. I don't have the right attitude. I don't have the right thoughts. I don't have the right actions in my life. It'll rebuke you. It'll correct you. And it'll train you in righteousness. And then you'll be ready. You'll be thoroughly equipped for the stuff that God's got, has designed, has planned for you to walk in. Do you have a favorite verse? How many of you say, I have a favorite verse? Or one, I have several, but I, I could say, if I know a favorite verse. I'm not going to ask you to say it. How many of you have a favorite verse in the Bible? You sort of, this is not mandatory. You're not, this is not, you don't go to heaven or not go to heaven based on this. But some of you have a favorite verse. And some people have a favorite verse because they just like the sound of certain verses. They're like, man, I really like that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Me and Steph Curry have the same favorite verse. That's awesome, right? You don't, yeah, I know we're Canada hockey. We don't know who Steph Curry is. And it's okay. But some people just like the sound of a verse. And I'm not saying that's Steph Curry's scenario. But some people, a favorite verse has emerged in their life because God made that verse super potent in their life. And I shared last week a little bit about that. No, was it two weeks ago? I forget. But I shared a little bit about how that back end of Philippians chapter 2 became very significant. How Paul describes Timothy as being dependable. He cared about what Jesus thought. He also cared about people. And he could trust Timothy. And how that became a potent passage of scripture in my life. Because God applied it to my life in my relationship to my pastor. So those verses went from like, oh yeah, that's interesting, to like favorite verses. Favorite verses for my life. Often verses become favorites because they become attached to our experience. They become attached to a story. So I'm going to read you a story of a pastor that I like to follow now and again. His name is John Piper. And he tells about one of his favorite verses. He said, in my early 20s, one verse took on monumental proportions and nothing has lodged it from its primary place. To this very day, it's the main promise I use in my fight against sin, encouraging my heart, and carrying through challenges in ministry. It's Isaiah 41.10. For, 
fear not, for I, of course this is God talking, I am with you, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let me mention three things about this promise to show how it became so central and why it's so repeatedly helpful to me this very day after thousands of applications. In July of 1971, whew, that's a while ago, I was about to get on an airplane and fly with Noel, that's his wife, to Europe to begin my doctoral studies at age 20, 25. I'm sure Isaiah 41.10 had been functional in my life before that time, but that day I received a phone call from my father who couldn't be there to see me off. He wanted to send me off with the promise of God, so he recited on the phone Isaiah 41.10, then prayed that God would make it real in my life. The effect of that phone call was to nail this promise into the scaffolding of my brain so firmly that it has become my go-to promise more than any other. In those very anxious times in Europe, where everything felt fragile and uncertain and unknown and threatening, I resorted to this promise hundreds of times. This promise has a special place in the arsenal of my spiritual warfare, partly because my father put it there. The reason it is so effective is because, unlike many promises, God himself is speaking with an eye to me personally. It doesn't say, God will strengthen you, God will help you, God will uphold you. That would be wonderful. Many promises are spoken that way, and they are wonderful. But it says, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you. When I recite this promise in my brain by an act of faith, I actually hear the living God say to me, I will help you. Spurgeon used to say, I love the I wills and I shalls of God. I know exactly what he means. It's a wonderful thing to hear that God will help you. So, why did that become a favorite verse? Because it was attached to an event. It was attached to a struggle. It was, a, it was attached to a real-life scenario. And I believe as you're reading the Word of God... God could give you a favorite verse. But you know what? It'll probably be different from someone else's because it'll often come attached to a life experience. And that's the way that it'll, be, it'll go from being something, you know, neat to read to something very precious and powerful in your life. Now, you might say, hey, that verse, now, some, this is the scholar side of things. Hey, that verse wasn't written to John Piper. It's the book of Isaiah. I mean, it's written to Israel. How come John Piper gets to take that as a favorite verse and say that God is saying, I will help you in all those things? Well, I'll read you. I'll read you his explanation. He says, even though it's addressed to Israel in the Old Testament context, I know because of 2 Corinthians 1.20, the blood of, oh, he said, I know because of 2 Corinthians 1.20, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, the blood of Christ and my place in the new covenant that all the promises of God are yes for me in Christ Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. All the promises of God are yes in him, in Christ Jesus. I don't worry that's addressed to Israel. I know that I'm part of the new Israel in Christ and that the promises are all the more true for me because of him. So, long story short, uh, Christianity... Uh, Followers of Jesus were grafted into what God had promised a long time ago to Abraham and to his line, which was his lineage became the nation of Israel. And it's spiritual Israel we're talking about, not just like Jewish people. It's talking about the promise that God had for the world that was going to come to the world through Israel. We get in on it even if we're not Jewish. Again, just a little bit of teaching that helps to understand. So he comes back to that and says, I don't worry that this is written to Israel. He says, I, I hang on to it because this is also mine in Christ. So, you can be fueled by your favorites. You can be fueled. In the same article, John Piper goes on to tell basically his six favorite promises in the Bible. I won't tell you them all. But he goes on to say basically, these are the ones that have kept me all these years. And now he's into his, I think, late 70s and still going strong. But he's saying, these are my go-to. These are the ones I keep coming back to. These are favorites that help me practically in life. Um, one of my favorites, I, didn't, I don't have this in my notes, it's probably not on the, on the PowerPoint either. One of my favorites, uh, I was 
in, my, in the battle of my mind, in the battle of my mind and my thought life, one of my favorite verses is, I am not my own. Some of you know this? I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. So honor God with your body. That's one of my favorite verses. So you have a temptation in an area and you say, man, my thoughts go in the wrong direction. My attention's going the wrong direction. I actually just recalibrate by telling myself that verse. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. So I'm going to honor God with my body. That means my brain. That means my eyes. That means my body. That means me. That's helpful. That's helpful. How did I... How did that verse become precious to me? Well, there's a time where I struggled and used that verse to win the fight. Many times. Like John Piper says, hundreds of times for him with this verse. But for me, that verse became a powerful weapon in spiritual battle in an area of my life. And so I, I, it's become very precious to me. So you can be fueled by your favorites. And the great thing is, it's a, it's a partnership. Favorite scriptures are a partnership. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. So our part of the partnership is pay attention when you read the scriptures. Pay attention when you re read the scriptures. Pay attention enough that you retain some of it. And now, it's okay. If you read the scriptures this week and, you, and you, you fell asleep in bed as you were reading your devotions, hey, I always say it still counts, right? God knows the heart. It's okay. But pay attention enough that you retain something that you have something to fuel you, to fight with, to remember and to recall. And so we must pay the most careful attention. Hebrews 2, 1, again. Therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. So here's the thing. A regular engagement with the word of God is going to cause... the. A, the tree-like growth that Psalm 1 talks about, that's gradual. It's good, though. It's always going, you know, maybe it's inch by inch or foot by foot, but you're, you're slowly and surely going in the right direction because you're feeding your mind on the right kind of stuff. But if you neglect it, if you neglect it, some of us know this by, by experience, sad experience in our lives. When we neglected the word for a while, there's a drifting in our thoughts. There's some fears that suddenly magnify themselves that weren't fears before. There's some sins that have no new juice to dominate and, and have power in our lives that didn't have power before. We find ourselves less uh, enamored with who God is and more caught up in all sorts of uh, things that are happening in the world, like worries and fears and concerns. And what about this? All because of the drift that we experience when we're not paying careful attention to the word. So that's our part, to pay careful attention. But here's the Holy Spirit's part. This is really encouraging. John 14, 26. It says, but, this is Jesus speaking, but the advocate, and you'll read this in your devotions this week, so get excited. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. That is such an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit will bring back to your memory, will remind you of the things that you've learned from God in the Word of God. He'll bring it back. So you say, well, I, I'm going to pay careful attention so I retain something, but then it's amazing. You'll get in that moment, and the Holy Spirit will remind you of a truth, of, of a reality, of some teaching in Scripture that's going to strengthen you when you need it. It's going to encourage you. It's going to help you make right decisions. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So I, I encourage you to be fueled by your favorites. But how do you develop favorites? Well, you got to read. I, 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 loved, I watched a video uh, about a pastor called Wayne Cadero who has the very hard task of serving the Lord in Hawaii. Now, Hawaii has lots of nice islands. There's Oahu. There's Kona. There's Maui. And there's Kauai. But Wayne, in his, this video, was talking about he loves to go to the island of Molokai. How many have been on a wonderful vacation to Molokai? Nobody. No one ever goes to the, the, the Hawaiian island of Molokai. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the island that, you know, 
you know, it's a black sheep island. I don't know, it's the one, you know, the kid brother that you don't like. I don't know. It's the island that nobody goes to. It's not, it doesn't got the beaches, the volcano, it doesn't have the, you know, it doesn't have all the cool things that all the other islands have. It's just a little bit, you know, the, the other island that nobody goes to. And he says he loves going there. One of his favorite places to go there is the bakery on the island. Now, if you've ever been to some of the smaller Hawaiian islands, you'll know that everything shuts down when the sun goes down. In fact, they don't even bother lighting the place up. It just goes dark. Now, not Oahu, where it's very populated. But their islands, they just go dark at night. Everyone goes to bed. There's no point staying up if the sun isn't up. That's how it is in Hawaii. Anyhow, on Molokai, same thing. Everybody goes to bed. But Wayne says, what I love to do is to go, to my, go with my friends to the bakery. The bakery doesn't open until 7 in the morning. And at 7 in the morning, you can go buy a slightly still warm, fresh loaf of bread. But he says, I go at 2 in the morning. And the reason I go at 2 in the morning to the bakery on Molokai is because there's a special door you can knock on. It's just this old weathered door. And you come and knock on the door at 2 in the morning. And he says, the alleyway beside the bakery fills up with people. And they knock on the door, and people open the door, and they say, what do you want? And they say, well, I want rye bread. I want sourdough bread. I want some flax bread with the, with, the, with the sesame seeds. I want the jelly-filled bread. I want the rainbow bread. I want, I, evidently, this bakery makes amazing bread. But you knock on the door at 2 in the morning, and they won't, get, they won't give you your bread at 7, but they'll personally serve it to you at 3. So they'll wait in the alley. Now, doesn't this sound nice on a cold day like this? Hanging out in Hawaii waiting for hot bread. Oh. I saw some of you shivering in the service because somehow we didn't have the thermostat set right. And I thought, oh, Hawaii and hot bread. Fresh bread. When I say that, what images are coming to your mind? Childhood images, maybe, for some of you? Maybe you have a favorite bakery you go to because it's fresh. Fresh bread. I mean, it's one thing to have favorite scriptures. It's another thing to have fresh bread every single day. Fresh from the word of God. Fresh bread. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Now, that's a verse mostly about providing for us. You know, it's actually literally talking about bread. But would you also give me something fresh from your word today? And you never know that the fresh bread you're eating today could be a favorite of the rest of your life. In fact, you might read a verse today that might grip your heart so powerfully or be so meaningful for what you're going through right now that it'll be a lifelong favorite. It'll never leave you. You'll always be able to recall it. It might be tied to a story for the rest of your life. But fresh bread, I believe that you're supposed to have favorites that stick with you, that you can recall, that you've got memorized, you can bring back. But I believe that God wants to give you something fresh every single day. Fresh. Mm. And what's God going to do with this? Now, I told you John Piper's story. Let me tell you a couple others. How many of you know about the guy they call Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Ring, just wave. Okay, a few of you know. German Christian pastor, quite a leader at a young age. Now, he lived through the experience of the, the Nazi regime, the rise of the Nazi regime. When he was 27, they, the Christian pastors in, in Germany, many of them saw the danger that was coming, how the, the, the Nazi party was nationalizing the church. They hated the Protestant church because they realized that there were so many of them. That was annoying to them. In fact, after the war, they interviewed some of the generals of the Nazi regime, and that was one of their most annoying things. Catholics sort of had one leadership structure, but the Protestants were like, like herding cats. So what they tried to do is bring them all under the banner of the Nazi party. And some of the churches saw that as the only way to preserve who they were, and they came under the, I don't know what the, whether it was a third or a fifth of the churches, Protestant churches, came under that banner. So these were churches that would have a cross 
with a swastika emblazoned in the middle of it. But there was an uprising of churches, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of that, the confessing church. And they wanted nothing to do with the Nazi party. In fact, uh, when he was 27, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, said, he, got, he did a radio broadcast on, on national German radio saying how, the, you know, this is how Germans are looking at the Führer, the Adolf Hitler. But this is how we see it from a biblical perspective. And he was speaking, and his, his message was basically saying, this is what we as a young generation of Christians believe. He's 27 at the time. He never got to finish the broadcast because the German, the Nazis cut it off before it got finished. He had an opportunity to leave Nazi Germany. And he went to, uh, for a while he went to England and then he ended up in America. And it was 1939. And he's living in America, and he could have, he, he, the war is about to begin. The war is about to begin. But he's safe. But God spoke to him through a, a verse of scripture. It was this one, Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Now, I'm reading you the NIV, the English NIV. Uh, what he wrote, as I, I'm sure he's reading in his German Bible, but what he wrote in his journal as a response to this verse was, the one who trusts or puts their trust in this tested stone, this cornerstone, this sure foundation, the one who believes in it, the one who relies on it. And, and if you know the New Testament in uh, Peter, I think it's First uh, Peter chapter 2, he comes back and just hammers on this, uses every Old Testament verse that talks about cornerstone to say that Jesus is the cornerstone. So Bonhoeffer knew that. This was talking, you know, he, he's talking about Jesus. When this, this, he read this verse and it gripped his heart and he wrote... The one who believes shall not flee. The one who believes shall not run away. And Bonhoeffer was convinced by this verse, not just, because this verse wasn't written to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but that the Holy Spirit applied it to his life. He was convinced that he had to go back to Germany. So he got on one of the very last boats from America to Germany because the war was about to begin and he arrived in Germany uh, in time for the declaration of war. Now, he had already written books. He was very anti-Nazi. Everybody knew that. He arrived in time for very difficult times. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie, some of the guys in that movie, in that conspiracy to kill Hitler, were people he knew quite well. I think I, Bonhoeffer was sort of one step away from that conspiracy. Some say, you know, was he in the conspiracy? I don't know. There's some debate about that. But he was very much uh, trying to work contrary to what was happening. He, did, he was involved in lots of things. He had a seminary he was running that the Nazis shut down, but he refused to stop teaching. He, uh, he would take Jewish men and uh, get them fake passports, get them, out of the, uh, go, get them out through the north up to Sweden. He'd say, yeah, these are Swedish businessmen. They're all Jewish men. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Some of his compatriots were working hard to try to save the lives of Jewish people. One of the, the men who had risen high in the Nazi ranks in the, in the, um, the areas of uh, espionage would hire Jewish men who still hadn't been discovered still hadn't been sent to concentration camps. He would hire them as spies, send them to areas where the Germans did not yet, had not yet conquered, so they could escape. So he said, yeah, we're sending this guy out on a spy mission. Of course, he'd never come back because that was his ticket out. So they were doing all these different things. Anyhow, eventually he was arrested. Bonhoeffer was arrested. And uh, he was taken to a concentration camp. And he was hanged. Three weeks before, Adolf Hitler took his own life. Just before the end of the war. He spent the whole war in Germany and lost his life 
Do I need to switch? I just hear this hum. Is that, that's not me? Okay, good. But it was, a re, it was a result of the direction that he sensed because God took a word and applied it to his heart and he believed it was for him. Now, this is, this is challenging for some people because they would say, That's, that wasn't written to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But I believe that if you read the word of God, if you apply yourself as a scholar and a follower and really engage with the word of God, God will bring back to your memory, he will bring back to you words in season that will help direct your paths. Words that will help direct your paths. I, I, had, uh, I had an experience that, that to me was very meaningful. Um, a few years ago, some of you know this story, uh, my wife and I were considering adopting. And we did everything probably anyone would do to, do, to figure out how to decide whether we were going to do it or not. We uh, looked into pros and cons. Don't you do that? What's the pros? What's the cons of, of, of taking this, this step to adopt? And then, what do our friends say who know us well? What do, my, what do our parents say? What do our kids say? You know, we got feedback from the community around us. That was really helpful. And, and then we went to professionals. We talked to social workers. We talked to our, our own doctor to get their feedback. That was really helpful. And then at the end, it was sort of like, we are sort of leaning, I would say leaning more positively than negatively in the decision to go ahead with this. But it was sort of like, well, let's just, let's just wait a little bit longer and pray about it and see if God might, you know, confirm this in one more way. We're, we've, we've, we've really done everything I think you could possibly do to make the decision. But now, is there some way that God wants to chime in on this decision? And is there a way that we can make ourselves um, open to him to do that? It happened to be in a season when I was actually teaching this material, the Hearing God Seminar. So I was telling people about, hey, God can speak to you today. And I was asking God, well, I'm open. I'm open. I can't make God speak to me, by the way. I can't conjure him up. But I can be open, and I can be alert, and I can be willing. And it actually was a night where I was getting ready to teach the Hearing God Seminar. People hadn't come yet. I was praying, God, would you speak to some people tonight? I, it would just be so great if you could help people t- to understand that you care so much about them. You know where they, they live. And, and would you speak to people in their situations tonight? I'm praying for that. And then suddenly, in that time of praying, it came to me, this verse. Matthew 1.20. Now, I only got a phrase. I only got a phrase. I'll tell you the phrase, then I'll read you the whole verse. And the phrase is, do not be afraid to take. Do not be afraid to take. Boy, when I heard that, I was so encouraged. Because for me, I knew what that verse was about. Mostly. I'll say mostly because I'll tell you how there was a part I didn't catch. I knew what that verse was about. I knew it was a verse. It was, it was an angel speaking to Joseph because Joseph was pretty sure he needed to divorce Mary. Because she was pregnant. And he had had nothing to do with it. So he was a good man. He was going to do it quietly. But they were betrothed. And back then, betrothed was a little more than maybe our current version of engagement. It had to have some official resolution. But he's going to do it quietly. But he was going to end his relationship with Mary. And an angel comes in to say, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, when I heard it, I immediately went to a different destination. I... Do not be afraid to take this boy who's waiting for a forever home as your son. And that encouraged me. It encouraged me. Now, it encouraged me even more when I read the verse. Because that's probably what you should do when you get a snippet of a verse and you, it just drops in your heart like that. Read the context. Go be the scholar too. Do it both. Right? And this it says, it says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, that was so good. I'm like, Lord, you gave me a phrase, something I've read before, not like a favorite verse or anything. I don't think anyone has this as their, like, their favorite life verse, but suddenly it's become one for me. It's become something for me, because you used it to encourage me. Now, It was written to Joseph. It wasn't written to me. Right? So you got to be careful about those things. 
But I understand that. I understand this is written to Joseph. I understand it wasn't written to me. But there's a few things about it that I think do apply. One, to understand about the God who asks us to do things even when we don't know the outcome. See, for Joseph to take Mary as his wife, he doesn't know where this is all leading to. He doesn't know what's going to come. The angel doesn't spell out, and by the way, all of these things are going to happen. You're going to experience all these. He doesn't know where he's going. He's going on an adventure, a wild adventure. Anyone who has kids, same thing. You know where this is going to end up? When you decide to have kids, do you know where that's going? You don't. You imagine where it's going. I think most of us imagine it's going to a really good destination. It's going to be awesome. We imagine Christmas is in the future with our 40 descendants or whatever. I don't know. We, we have some sort of picture of the future that's really great. These kids are going to grow up and they're going to be healthy and happy and really grateful for how we raised them. <laughs> right? Well, it might not be like that. You're taking a total risk. You might get mixed results. Or more sobering, you might have crushing heartache along the way. When you love, you make yourself so vulnerable. And yet it's such a good thing to do. So I needed what Joseph needed. I needed a word from the Lord that says, this path you're on, even though you don't know the destination, you don't know whether it's going to be good, bad, or ugly. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For me, adoption looked like the gospel. So I just said, okay. We're going to jump into the life of, or he's going to jump into the life, our lives. And we're going to endeavor to do good and we're going to trust God and we're going to leave the results. We're going to do everything we can, but we'll leave the results up to God. And we're going to trust that we shouldn't live with fear, we shouldn't live with worry, but that we should move ahead and choose to do good. And we did. You know, I had this, you know, this fragment of a verse that turns into a bigger thing. I'll tell you another quick story that really hit me. I was counseling a guy, and he was so discouraged because of he was, he had an addiction he could not shake. Could not shake. He wouldn't, he couldn't get victory in this area of his life. And he was so beaten down. He was so beaten down. And I just, you know, I he would he just come and he just um, as I talk with him, he just say, oh, I'm just like the worst follower of God that ever existed. And, you know, he just was so, he was so negative on himself, and he would just always be like, I fail again and again and again. And I just thought, Lord, I'm, you know, I really want to help this guy. So I went away and I prayed. It, it was like a, a break, a bathroom break long. That's how long I had. Basically, let's take a break. So I'm, I'm taking this tiny break, and I'm saying, Lord, what do I got to give this guy? I'm not sure what I can give him. And God gave me a snippet of a verse. And I was like, no, no, no. This is the snippet. Okay? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I was like, uh, Lord, I have definitely not heard from you. <laughs> this guy needs encouragement. He is so discouraged. And I'm going to come in there and go, man up. You haven't, you haven't worked hard enough against your sin until the point of shedding blood. You've you got to shed your blood, buddy. I was like, no. This, I, there's so many ways in life. I am not good. No, Lord, I can't not. But you know what I did? I did what I did with the verse for adoption. I looked it up in its context. So I flipped out my phone, right? This is back in the day when I actually had other distractions. But I actually found the Bible app. And on my bathroom break, I found the context. This is the context. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons? It says, my son, 
do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. (laughs) I went back into that room. I said, I'm going to read you a verse that sounds harsh at first, but it's going to get good at the end. And here's this totally discouraged guy. And I said, I said, this is, in your struggle against sin, have you not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And I thought, oh, the blood's going to drain out of his face. But then I got to the point about, he accepts you as a son. He loves you. You have felt like your sin has totally, completely uh, made you unacceptable before God. But it's his sacrifice on the cross that makes you acceptable before God. Do not be discouraged. Do not give up. God is for you, not against you. Gospel just started coming again and again. And it just... I could see the guy lifted in his shoulders and his countenance because he was killing himself. The enemy was accusing him and he was agreeing. And he had no defense. But then we found some scripture that encouraged him, told him not to lose heart. Don't lose heart because he loves you. He sees you as his son. And so we had a great talk about what it means to be a son of a really loving father. And I believe it was what was needed. So we're going to end our time together and just take a few minutes. Because we're talking about reading the word of God. We're going to take a few minutes just to read the word of God. And I'm going to ask you, if if you've got a bench Bible, I'm going to ask you to grab it. If they all get grabbed before you get one, then you're stuck with your phone, sorry. Hopefully you've got it cleaned off most of the apps so you're not distracted. But I'm going to ask you to turn to page number 485. Page 485, it's Psalm 103. So page 485 is where we're going to go. And we're going to take the last few minutes of our service before we go for a wonderful meal together. To be scholars and followers who engage the word of God. So Psalm 103, and it's on page 485. If you get to page 485, you'll see that there's just a little bit on that page, and there's a, little, and there's, there's a bunch more on the, on the next, on page 486. So don't, don't just read the first few verses, read both. And I'm going to ask you just to take some time and read that. It's going to be pretty quiet in here. And uh, maybe you'll need to read it two or three times. Maybe you'll get a little ways in and some living words will just jump out at you and you'll need to engage with those because God's speaking to you. Maybe there'll just be a, a, a line that you say, man, that, that could be the line. I could, that's the fresh bread I needed for today. I can run with that. That'll fuel me for the rest of the day knowing that truth. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray real quickly. I know you're already starting to read because you can't wait to get out. It's awesome. Let me pray, and then we'll just read together.